Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler, der sætter verden sammen. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg har i den her uge talt med Peter Pomerantsev. Han har en helt særlig historie. Han har en helt særlig forståelse af Rusland. Og derfor har han også en eminent analyse af, hvad der sker i Putins Rusland og i Ukraine i øjeblikket. Peter Pomerantsev er født i Kiev i 1977. Dengang var det en del af Sovjetunionen. Hans far var digter og radiomand, og derfor blev familien konstant forfulgt. Hans far udbredte forbudt vestlitteratur, fordi han syntes, det var uundværligt for enhver civilisation. Han blev arresteret af KGB, og da han slap væk, der valgte familien at flygte. Peter Pomerantsev var på daværende tidspunkt kun 9 måneder gammel. De flygtede først til Vesttyskland. Siden flyttede de videre til London, hvor Peter Pomerantsev voksede op og blev til en ung mand. Når han blev spurgt om, hvor han kom fra, vidste han aldrig helt, hvad han skulle svare. Han var godt nok født i Sovjetunionen, men han kendte næsten ikke landet, for han kunne ikke huske noget derfra. Omvendt så han vokset op i en familie, der talte russisk, så han kunne noget russisk. Senere, da han vendte tilbage til Rusland, blev han ikke betragtet som russer, og i Storbritannien betragtede de ham heller ikke som brite, så han har altid været lidt i tvivl om, hvad han skulle svare, når han blev spurgt om, hvad han var. Og han har jo heller ikke synes det var særlig vigtigt. Men efter Ruslands invasion af Ukraine i 2014, hvor de annekterede Krimhaløen, blev han bevidst om, at det der dengang var en vag, nuanceret, kulturel idé om, hvor man kom fra, det blev til et politisk statement, og så valgte Peter Pomeranz at sige, at han var fra Ukraine. Han identificerer sig i dag som ukrainer, og han identificerer sig meget med den ukrainske sag imod Putins Rusland. Han har også en særlig historie, fordi han i år 2000 valgte at flytte tilbage til Rusland. Han lavede tv og arbejdede i 10 år som tv-producent i Putins Rusland, og han så, hvordan tv'en blev brugt til at skabe den nye propaganda for Putin. Det var en særlig form for propaganda-tv, der på den ene side var vestlig. De importerede vestlige debatformater og vestlige reality-formater, og så udnyttede de en særlig autoritær tradition til at fremstille deres egen leder som stærk. De kunne for eksempel have en debat, hvor der var... En, der repræsenterede Putins parti, Forenet Rusland, som var stærk og klog og valgt alle diskussioner. En, der repræsenterede det gamle kommunistparti, som virkede fuldstændig affældig, fordrukken og inkompetent. Og en, der repræsenterede det liberale Vesten, som var flyvsk, usammenhængende og på alle mulige måder svag. Den form for tv-program er et godt eksempel på, hvad der skabte Putin. Det lignede demokrati. Men hele scenen blev brugt til at gøre ham til en stærk mand, til den store folkeforfører. Den, der skulle bringe Rusland tilbage til Ruslands storhed. Det har Peter Pomerantsev skrevet to bøger om. Den ene kom i 2014, hedder Nothing is true and everything is possible. The surreal heart of New Russia. Den anden kom i 2019 og hedder This is not propaganda, adventures in the war against reality. Begge bøger er blevet internationale bestsellere og har gjort Peter Pomerantsev til en helt særlig analytiker af, hvad der foregår i Rusland, fordi han har den indfødtes indsigt, men samtidig har han også outsiderens særlige, udenforstående blik på det, der foregår som noget helt specielt. Yes, welcome to our viewers here in Denmark, and especially welcome to Peter Pomerantsev. You're with us. Are you in Baltimore? Uh, I'm in D.C. Okay, so you're with us from Washington, D.C., but you are at, at the Johns Hopkins University at the moment, right? That's correct, yeah. Peter Pomerantsev er i dag ansat som forsker i politisk kommunikation ved Johns Hopkins University i Baltimore. Han har netop været i Ukraine på en 
reportagerejse, hvor han har skrevet et stort essay til The Atlantic. Da jeg talte med Peter Pomerantjev, havde han utroligt travlt, og det bærer samtalen også præg af. Han løb rundt alene i sin lejlighed i Washington D.C., hvor han skulle passe tre børn, og han var samtidig på vej til to møder med den amerikanske regering, der er optaget af at høre, hvordan han så hele konflikten i Ukraine. På trods af travlheden og den utrolige hektik, så havde Peter Pomerantjev tid til at fortælle os om det først. Hans udlægning af det hele, og vores samtaler følger her. Your own national identity and your family's history has been part of your of your work and and your and your books and we've learned that you're not quite Russian and you're not quite English and that your daughter at least one of them says that one side of her face is Russian and the other side is is English and her cheek is 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 Jewish but you're also born in in Kiev and could be described as an emigre Ukrainian how, how does this invasion of Ukraine affect you personally Um, so very deeply. Um, I mean, very simply, I have a lot of family in Ukraine. I do a lot of work in Ukraine, so a lot of friends. This morning I received a message from one of my best friends. Uh, he's he's a very famous journalist, the editor of The Village in Ukraine, which is a very sort of, you know, bohemian, artsy sort of publication. And he's enlisted and he's off to the front, uh, to the front lines today. So, you know, we're all very worried for our friends and family, really. Um, Yeah. Do do you think of yourself as Ukrainian? Sure. I mean, I, I wrote an essay about this. Um, growing up, I didn't really think about it too much. Russian Ukrainian was all kind of mixed, and I had no physical contact with the country. So my parents left when I was uh, nine months old. So I was very young. So, but I knew I had heritage from there. Um, but I spoke Russian. I didn't speak Ukrainian. I didn't speak. I didn't grow up in a in the kind of patriotic Ukrainian emigre community, which is a very specific one. But I knew it was from Kiev. But but I think these things were very overlapping. Um, and I didn't really think about them very much. I was defined by others. Others would say, you're Russian, because for them, Russia and Ukraine were one. So I'd be like, right, I'm Russian, whatever. And it wasn't a strong, it wasn't a big political issue. They're all part of the Soviet Union. So after that, I became much more, I mean, I became very, very aware of the differences, obviously. But It really started in 2014, it became a political choice. So people would ask me, are you Russia? I'd say, no, I'm Ukrainian. So after Maidan, you can, you know, before you could be nuanced and say, you know, I was born in Kiev, I speak Russian, and you could, you could do all these, these sort of layered answers. But then very specifically, that became impossible in many ways. Uh, and for good reason. So, so really from 14, I'm very quite adamant in saying, no, no, I'm not Russian, I'm Ukrainian. But again, these, you know, these things are emerging, you know, they're always, they're, they're, they're contextualized. They change. They become something which is a cultural idea becomes a, a political statement. So it became a political statement for me after 2014. But obviously, you also you were born in in what was then the Soviet Union, and you went to Germany and to to Britain, and then you returned in the early 2000s to Russia to to make to make TV there, and you're married to one from Moscow. Uh, so you also have strong feeling for the Russians. I I, I suspect. Yeah, but listen, I mean, my, my time in, in Russia was very much as a an outsider appearing in. So, I mean, the book is still very much, even though I'm, I'm privileged to sort of be able to walk between these borders and, and be bicultural in some ways. At the end of the day, you know, I grew up entirely in, in England and a bit in Germany. So my nine years in Russia were very much an, an outsider with sort of fluent Russians insights. And the book is very much an outsider's book, peering in. So, you know, 
I'd say kind of a limited real relationship. And there was no moment when I thought, wow, I identify with this country. I mean, I, I would never support Russia during the football, if that's what you mean. That's, <laughs> no, how, that's how these never. things are tested. <laughs> yeah. I mean, nothing is true is very much an outsider's book. Yeah, and that's also the privilege of reading it as, as a Westerner, that we see it with your eyes and, and your fascination of, of, of what's going on. There's a there's a very interesting passage in, in uh, This Is Not Propaganda, where you write about the making of Vladimir Putin as a president. You meet one of his early spin doctors, Gleb Pavlovsky, who used the notion of the majority and did a lot of polling about what character would gain support. And I think that's something we found a little hard to understand the fascination of, of Putin. What was it about Putin that made him so attractive as a president? And what was it that Gleb Pavlovsky found in him? Well, I mean, the way they put it, they created him. I mean, the spin doctors would say Putin was a blank, a blank space and they created him. I don't know if that's entirely true. Uh, that's always the quote. That's always the claim of propagandists that they are the real sorcerers. Uh, but, that um, you know, he, you know, they basically did lots of polling and realized that the most popular character in Russian popular culture was, you know, this, this very famous TV series about a, a spy, a bit like Bond. But but Russian and a bit more gloomy, gloomy Bond, less sex, more 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 resentment and sadness, and um, so so they're like okay, let's take someone from the security services. That's a good profile. But but no, he was terrible when he started. His ratings were zero. He was known as you know he was completely grey and had no charisma. And they really built him up through a war in Chechnya. I mean that was the thing that was transformative. He became a war leader, and they built him up as this hard, tough man. Uh, sober, sporty, the opposite of um, the opposite of Yeltsin. So that's what kind of basically happened. Yeah, there is a dialectic between cynicism and conspiracy theories that you write about, uh, yes. which which I think is is part of when you there's a there's a chapter in the book called the future starts in Russia, and I yes. think this part of cynicism and conspiracy theories is something that you saw in Russia and that we've become acquainted with, at least in, in the West afterwards. How, what was this dialectic between cynicism and conspiracy theories? Yes, that's a very nice way of putting it. Um, so putting it very, very simply, when people stop trusting anything, stop trusting any sources of, of knowledge, start seeing malign motivations around everything, when trust is broken, People aren't set free into kind of like some space of freedom where they can see the world as it is. People feel in chaos. And in that chaos, identity becomes more important than knowledge and epistemology, uh, because that's what gives you a sense of who you are in the world. I mean, it's always important, but it becomes even more important. And, and when all the kind of rational ideologies based on evidence and rational argumentation become useless for people, then they need a new thing. And conspiracy has sort of replaced enlightenment ideologies in Russia and in many places. Um, and it, it serves those functions. It gives people a, a sense of order and their place in the world and, and forms community. And look, we see that all over the world. But in Russia, it happened very early, it happened in the 1990s as a mass phenomenon. It probably have, it's permanent in the Middle East. My friends from the Middle East say this is just normal in the Middle East. But in Russia, I think you have a superpower or a great power or wannabe superpower then really taking that as the state ideology and the foreign policy. That, I think, is the big difference, you know, from, from it happening in bits of Lebanon and something. Um, so you have a great power going, okay, how are we going to use this in a really, really strategic way? So I think that's the, 
that's why it's important. You know, Russia kind of takes conspiracy and turns it into a weapon of global ideology. So, and that's very effective. It resonates everywhere. You know, the fact that it's happening everywhere, but Russia, Russian propaganda really elevated. So that's 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 what I found. And, and look, lots of studies show this. I mean, I remember a study in America from Northeastern University saying the more people don't trust any media sources, the more likely they are to believe disinformation. So lack of trust doesn't set you free. It makes you more gullible. And that is a that is a surprising dialectic. But then again, I think we all see it around ourselves every day. Like the people who says, oh, you can't trust the media, then end up believing utter crazy stuff instead. Yeah, yeah, I think there's an Oscar Wilde quote about that. I don't remember the quote exactly, but something like those who don't believe in in anything are ready to believe in everything. Or something. There's something. always an Oscar Wilde quote for everything. <laughs> and that's a very good one. There you go. Yeah, it's not actually that. Yeah, I'm sure people have have, have intuited this already. What's interesting with Russia is how it's taken, institutionalized, made a state foreign policy and state domestic policy, and plugged into this vast information war arsenal. And now we seem to have people who a leadership who believes it themselves and have started wars based on their own propaganda. The way you describe the development of this TV phenomenon in Russia in the early 2000s, there is a mixture of something that's utterly Western entertainment and an import of, of Western TV formats. And then there's a specific Russian strategic interest. And they're, they're sort of combined in this Do you see that this changing now? My own sense is that there were more Western influence in the beginning of, of this century, and now they're further away from that. Do you see a shift in what television and propaganda was like at the time when you were in Russia and what it's become now, I mean, before the invasion? I mean, what they learned, and that was already happening when I was there, was to make Russian versions of things. So they'll take a Western sitcom, make the Russian version, take a Western show like Mad Men and make the Russian version. So there's a lot more domestic production. And it's still very reliant on Western formats. I mean, the big shows are still the big Western reality shows. So now that's gone. It's interesting what they're going to fill the TV with. So, so at the moment, they're filling it with ideology, and that will not work. That's never worked. So they're going to have a bit of a crisis about what they do. No, they'll do what they always do. They'll do what they've done with McDonald's. You know, they'll call it uh, McRonald's and do the Russian version. And instead of the X factor, you'll have the Y factor. Uh, so that's what they'll do. They'll make, you know, cheap knockoffs. Instead of buying the formats, they'll just rip them off it's completely as a culture it's very derivative it always has been and and it's genius culture is always to take western models the novel and then make them much more exciting but it's not really a place that originates a huge amount of formats and genres and framings uh so it'll carry on copying the west and then doing it spin on it but that's that's a, that's a permanent thing i mean that's just that's just what it's like i mean, R- Russia is a funny empire. It's an empire that says it doesn't need the rest of the world and spends its whole time thinking about what does the rest of the world think about it. I mean, it's it's uh, it's really like one of those people's like, I don't care what you think, but all they care about is what you think. And all, their only reference point is the West. And they're always looking over their shoulder. And the dream of, of a kind of Russian isolationism that maybe some Slavophiles had was always empty. And it seems now, because when people are saying, well, Russia can do without the West, they have all the resources, the sanctions are not going to hurt them. It will be like Italy and Germany and Japan in the 30s, that they have all the resources that they need themselves. They can do in splendid isolation. But what about Western consumption goods? What about all the Western commodities that they've gotten used to? So to put another word, do you think that 
that not being able to access Western goods and Western culture and travel in the West, do you think that will do damage to the Russian population? Yeah, yeah of course it will. Um, but we have to think about in which sectors and what. Some, 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 it's going to be a very paradoxical landscape. And one, I don't think we really understand. We really need some sort of cultural economics or something or, or, or social, psychological economics to understand. Some things, Russians, Russians are very resilient. I mean, they've been through a lot of stuff and they're proud of being resilient. So the idea that they'll, I mean, they're not Danes. They're not going to crumble because somebody takes something away from them. I don't mean Danes. They're not Western Europeans who are used to a certain yeah. lifestyle. I mean, the lifestyle is very new. They can remember the 1990s. They can remember the Soviet period. You know, they, most people still live atrociously. So their, their level of kind of like resist, resilience is actually very deep. And they're very proud of that. And so they say, ha, 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 you won't be able to live without Parmesan. They'll live without Parmesan. <laughs> there'll be other things. There'll be other things which have a sort of a self-worth and a cultural worth and a worth in terms of self-respect, which will have influence. I think everything to do around cars. I think weirdly anything to do around energy. They've invested so much in this idea of they have these these tubes, these pipes, which in a very, very, this is more like psychoanalysis, this idea that the world is dependent on their pipes. You know, they are the anal tract of the world without which the world cannot live. That's psychologically very important. Very important for them to feel global citizens. All the data shows that, that Russians feel both patriotic and global citizens. Very important for them to feel they're connected to the world. Have a look at the propaganda. It's nonstop saying the alliance against us is crumbling. Germany's actually on our side. France is actually on our side. Brazil's on our side. The Russian propagandists know that Russians do not want to feel isolated. They don't want to feel shunned. Everybody in Russia thinks this is going to end soon. This is a joke and a misunderstanding. And very soon they'll be reconnected to the world. So those sort of those those aren't to do with like the pain of not having soap. You know, soap they might not care about. But something around cars, something about the, the meaning of the pipe and its connection to the rest of the world, about being needed by the rest of the world and about being respected and valued in a weird way. All those things are very, very important. Uh, but again, we need more research. We, I wouldn't be mechanistic in thinking about sanctions. I wouldn't be, I wouldn't use these sort of Maslow pyramid of needs and all that sort of stuff. Russians do not operate on this Western Maslowian like pyramid of needs. It's a much, much more psychologically surprising society than that. And what something that's hard for us here in the West to understand, which is, I think we should be fair to say that it's hard to understand about all societies actually, is how should we read these polls from the Levada Institute? I mean, on the one hand, eh, we see that there's a huge support for, for Putin. There's great trust in the invasion. On the other hand, it's a society where you can get to prison for 15 years for saying the truth about the war. And, and I'm not asking you how they really feel, but more analytically, how should we read them? How should we approach these yeah. different testimonies about- Yeah, I wouldn't trust any polling that asks about the war directly. I would just, it's just gonna be so skewed. If you're gonna use them as a data point, I would, you'd have to contrast them with behavioral data, economic data, you know, online searches. We don't need the West. Everyone's hoarding Western products, you know? So you'd have to see that as a, you'd have to take them as a lie and then contrast them with behavioral data and then you'll get something interesting. But as a data point, no, I would, I'd be very careful. Something that's also very hard to understand is I think we tend to confuse the Russian public with the with the Chinese public, but there's no firewall around 
the the Russian internet. You know, they you can't shut the rest of the world down efficiently like you can do in 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 China. So, and I would guess that if you are in Russia now, you could actually access Western news media if you wanted. It's just buying a a VPN. But you wrote something in your essay in the Atlantic that I thought was very interesting, that it's not a technological barrier for them to obtain knowledge about what's going on and what the West is thinking. It's a psychological barrier in in instead. What, what is meant by that? Well, people don't, I mean, it's the classic stuff. People don't want to think about unpleasant things. They don't want to take on responsibility. It's all of that, you know, it's sort of a splitting where people push reality away, maybe a cognitive dissonance where they understand there's something bad happening, but they don't want to take it on. Uh, so it's, it's all that stuff. And then there's a sense of powerlessness. The people who do know what's going on feel incredibly powerless. I mean, we do know the polls around that and they're pretty accurate. So the people, the people, there is a pattern between people who are willing to let themselves believe the Kremlin propaganda are happier at the moment. I don't know how thick that happiness is. It might be a very fragile happiness, but they are happier and they have less anxiety and depression than the people who say they have a problem with it. We do have lots of data about that. So that's, that's, that's important. Um, uh, so all those sort of factors. So what, what, what would your reading be of the effect of our sanctions and this whole Western offensive against, against Russia at the moment? How do you think it affects the support for Putin and the regime? So, so look, sanctions, especially with regard to Russia, are going to be about perception. They're going to be slightly about like shortages and goods, but they're going to be about perception. And, and so far, we've, we've launched the sanctions policy without an information campaign to go with it, which is insane. I mean, imagine you did an economic reform policy and you didn't do an information campaign to go with it. And you're letting Putin frame all the perception around this. We So far, we don't have a policy. So far, we did some reactive sanctions to sort of say, oh, oh sanctions. There is, I don't see any strategy yet. Uh, maybe there's a clever guy in the treasury in the US who's come up with it, but it hasn't been communicated to us. Certainly has isn't being communicated to Russians. So at the moment, we have half a policy. It's not even a policy yet. It's just some stuff. I'm actually stunned by by how badly this is being rolled out as a policy. Maybe the sanctions are brilliant. Maybe they've identified the five weak spots in the Russian economy. They're going to bring it crashing down. But it'll be about perceptions inside of Russia. And there's no one communicating this at all. And I'm just very confused about what's going on, frankly. Another big question, of course, is if we were to access what would be comrades in Russia or friends in Russia, those who are liberal-minded or or those who are potentially critical of the regime, what would our access of, of such an inf- information campaign be? I mean, what, what would it look like? Who who should we talk to and what channels should we use? So the channels are multiple. It's not the, it's not the Cold War. There's any, I mean, so many. There's loads of social media ones. Even the sites that are blocked, people are getting around them. I think Instagram dipped by 30, by 20% or something or 30%. You can check the data, but people are still using it. Um, or you just, you know, you, you just do it the way Biden does, you know, start to talk to the Russian people in your speeches. It'll get translated, believe me. So there's the, the, the delivery mechanisms are multiple in, in today's world. This is a this is not, not an excuse. Uh, the question is the audiences, yeah, you have to get outside the liberal bubble. The liberal bubble are kind of leaving the country anyway, so it's kind of pointless. Um, you've got to talk to the broader Russian population and you probably have different messages for different bits of the population and different messages, you know, the way you do a full full spectrum campaign. The, the, the question isn't how you do it. We all know how it's done. The question is, it's not being done. And, and the question is why? Um, is it because deep down the US and its allies hope that this, that they can still do a deal with, with Putin? So they don't, they're kind of still signaling 
They're like, okay, we're going to be nasty, but you can climb down now. Or is it because we just don't know how to do it anymore? We did in the Second World War, we did in the Cold War, have we just forgotten how to do it? I mean, it was a disaster in Iraq. I mean, that was some of the worst international communications that we've ever seen in the history of the world, probably. You know, when Americans tried to persuade Iraqis that they were bringing freedom, that was a disaster. So maybe we're burnt by that. Maybe you're like, oh, wow, we did it so badly before, let's not do it again. I don't know what it is. Um, it's It's got to get beyond our traumas, though and sort of deal with reality ourselves and get rid of our delusions as well that you know putin wants to cut a deal so you don't believe that he wants to cut a deal well he wants to win no he wants to bring down the west reorientate the world towards the dictatorship and see a new dawn where china is the big big evil guy and russia saudi arabia and the others are his little lapdogs that's the that's his vision russia is a russia is a tilting power the power that is going to change the world order by accentuating certain things that's that's what he's going for i mean he's there's no way back he's not going to you know unless he has a complete personality change no he's made a commitment to a world where west and western values are are not the future it's a very very they talk about it openly it's not a secret i mean they talk about this very very openly and so far the world is watching south africa is watching saudi arabia is watching india is watching all the countries that could be part of this new camp of authoritarians are watching It seems to me, at least from the distance, that they have a strong reading of the West, a lot stronger reading than we have of of Russia, and that they're appealing to anti-liberal sentiments in our part of uh, of the world. This whole concept of gay Europa and and this understanding of cancel culture and the internal oppositions in in our culture. Do you think they're better at influencing our culture than we are influencing theirs? So in this war, they they clearly lost very badly in the West. They clearly miscalculated. All their assets didn't work. There was censorship against their media. They're now making a comeback. Uh, and pro-Russian arguments are kind of rising again. Less to do with the fringes. In the in America, it's got to do with that. So the American support for Russia in the Republican wing is about that. It's the, here's our allies in, in the culture war. In Europe, I think it's less that. It's much more about energy, money, much more transactional. So there is some of that. I, it can't. I mean, no, it's gone very badly for them this war. But they're making a comeback. Their strength isn't there, and their effort isn't in the West anymore. Their effort is in the rest of the world. Again, their effort is to tilt the world against the West. Sure, divides in the West are important for that. If Trump gets back in, amazing for them. But I think their main pitch now is to Africa, Latin America, Asia. That's where they're kind of really focused on, and they're winning there by a country mile. How do you think the West should respond to that? Because it seems that we have this narrative now about this is democracy against autocracy and this is the free world you know this whole uh, restating of the cold war uh, alliances and and this old western nar- nar- narrative and i'm not sure that's an awfully appealing narrative to people in africa or people in in india or people in in latin america how should we counter their propaganda offensive outside of our own world So I think you always you have to break it down. You can't be too broad. But obviously, yeah, when America starts going, it's fighting an anti-colonialist war. People in Latin America laugh, you know, like, what are you talking about? <laughs> so that's all right. So I, there's lots of things to think about. Almost go country by country, which countries matter. Uh, and what are their attitudes to Russia? Attitudes towards Russia among Venezuela's neighbors are pretty negative. Um, so it might not be about what we're doing. It's about, you know, do you really want Russia as an ally? A lot of dictatorships in the Middle East and Africa are have grown alliances with Russia, seeing Russia as a strongman ally, I think that's shaken. Russia is seen as a, it's a very chaotic power, a very unstable power, a very irrational power. So 
you'd always have to go geography by geography and, and, and country by country and narrative by narrative. And often it's not about us because our own reputation is so bad in these places. It's about highlighting, we're just telling the truth about what's what, you know, Russia's disastrous war. So that's that. There's also a lot of positives. Um, for the first time, we see this coalition of countries, which are largely democracies, that are afraid of China, Japan, Australia, Singapore, Taiwan, really seeing Ukraine's war as their war as well. So there is, for the first time, I think, an informational exchange around what are what is a new security architecture that grants security to small and medium-sized countries for neighbors to bullies. So that's something that started. So that's a positives as well. Lots of positives. So I wouldn't be purely negative. I think Russia has been building up a lot of credibility in the rest of the world, as it's called. That's a term that's used in media, as you know, rest of the world. <laughs> in the rest of the world for the last 20 years. And, and now those narratives go very deep because they resonate with local narratives, especially about Russia being a, a hedge against the West. So they go very, very deeply in those countries. However, I think a lot of those countries are looking at Russia going, what the fuck are you doing? So <laughs> it's also an opportunity. I mean, they, they have like seriously undermined what they've achieved over the last 20 years. I mean, before the war, I think we had this perception because Russia, Russians are always the evil bullies in our popular culture. There's no political correctness about demonizing Russians, you know, even in the new James Bond movies, when, when you're political correct about some groups, Russians are just evil. So I think in our, and I'm not saying that to defend Russia, I'm just saying that's part of our social imaginary. And I think that there was built up this understanding of Russia as a giant of cyber warfare, as someone who were really playing the game and, and someone saying that they were even deciding the American presidential election in 2016. So, and it seems now that maybe we overestimated their capabilities of, of cyber warfare. How do you think they've fared during this war when so, it comes so they, to cyber and communication? Yeah, I'm not a cyber expert. I mean, my overall sense is that none of those units were prepared for this war. So this war was not shared with the information, certainly not shared with the propaganda agencies. That clearly, they were completely caught by surprise. And it doesn't look as if it was really shared with the cyber guys. So he decided for reasons of his own paranoia that he would launch this war in his own way. And so they didn't even try, not in any serious way. There were some cyber attacks, but they were feeble. So it was just a very weird campaign where they, they clearly did not prepare the propagandists. The propagandists were opening and going, what the hell is going on? We were not told that this would be, they were told this was a game. You know, we're trying to like leverage West to get a deal. That was the game, you know, and, and, and you know, push Zelensky closer to Russia because the West would let Zelensky down. That was what everybody in Moscow thought, including senior oligarchs, senior ministers, including people, everybody in the propaganda establishment. So to do a campaign, you need to prepare it for months. I mean, you don't just start it overnight. So now we see them making gains, but it's hard once, you know, surprise is one of the main things in propaganda and cyber, but everyone's really prepared. So they sacrificed all that for surprise. The surprise didn't work. So so they, they, they messed up. This is a disastrous, disastrous, disastrous military endeavor, which needs to be punished. And then as someone who studied political communication and, and propaganda and really taught us to analyze it uh, differently, how do you see the Zelensky campaign? Because he has kind of conquered the West and he's, a, and I mean, everyone here thinks of him as a hero and really admire, admire him. How, how do you see, 
the propaganda game of Ukraine. Well, I mean, I wouldn't compare it to the Russian one. I mean, they're trying to do genuine communication, you know, rather than sort of something manipulative in the sense that, you know, Russia always says one thing and means something else, you know. So Russia will try to seduce the liberals while being, you know, fascist or and so on. So, so it's, it doesn't have that disingenuousness that the Russians have. And they don't use the whole kind of like, you know, armory of troll farms and stuff like that. To the extent that we know the Russians do, maybe they do internally, but externally, we haven't seen much of that. So, so it's very different. It's it's a, it's a genuine communications campaign. And I think it's been remarkable so far. But at one point, they're going to have to move from sympathy and empathy to mutual interest and a common vision. And that, that's going to need more planning and more foresight and more policies. You can't just do that on emotion. You need policies. And, and that's, I guess, at the moment, we're not in that yet. We're still very much thinking about the daily grind of, of war. But that's, that's where it's going to have to go, something a little much more long term. And really where, where, where people in the West feel a mutual interest as well. But I think there's another uh, really, really uh, admirable thing that, that they achieved. It was making the West believe in the West again. That before this, this invasion, there was this uh, is coming apart and, and China is winning and we're not united. And, and there, was, there were these stories about polarization. But it seems that Zelensky actually managed to tell stories about our own values and our histories that mobilized the West. Yeah, I mean, I hope, I hope, I hope that becomes more than just emotions and stories. That has to be policies. I mean, we need a new security architecture. We need a new prioritization around the relationship between economics, security, and and rights. So, until those serious questions are being asked, I, I'm going to be skeptical. So, you think we're still just intoxicated by unity in the West, and we're still in this? great moment but, but we're not delivering on it yet um well we're clearly not delivering on it at all but um so we have to fuse western values and economics and security again they got split after the cold war it shouldn't even be an issue about a war of aggression of the type russia has waged full of sort of a daily grind of war crimes There shouldn't be an issue about that not stopping oil and gas relationships with Russia. That should just be automatic. It should be with Saudi Arabia as well. You know, you know, we've let ourselves be suckered into a series of relationships based on economics that overrode human rights, democratic principles, and it's led us to a place where we're now still very much scared to do anything for risk of rising gas prices in our own populations. So we let ourselves do that. We've let ourselves do that with China. And that happened because we overrode democratic values with a preposterous theory of economic change that nobody ever believed in. It was just greed. Oh, they'll become more like us if we trade with them. Maybe there was a moment when someone believed that, but it was pretty evident pretty soon that it was nonsense. So we had a pseudo ideology that no one really believed in that became our excuse for empowering abuse and Let's call it fascism across the world. We completely ignore the people who are screaming, this is a great mistake. And until we start re-looking at that and reinvestigating that, and I know it's complicated. I'm not sort of idealist. I know that you do have to do business with dictatorships, but what kind of business and what is the leverage in that business and to what extent do we become slaves of that relationship? So when the Ukrainians say it's for your and our freedom, they're right. At the moment, the, the reason we're reacting so weakly to Russia 
is because we're scared, because they have humiliated us. They are still the dominatrix in this relationship. And we are still, even though we don't want to recognize it and don't recognize it and don't want to see reality ourselves, you know, we are the humiliated partner in this. And until we sort of recognize that reality, we're in denial ourselves. Uh, I have just two more questions uh, for you. One, one is about Europe, because it seems to me that this is the first time, at least in my lifetime, that Europe has emerged as a geopolitical actor and, and actually acting together. And I know, I mean, I've written 1,000 editorials about the failures of market fundamentalism in Europe and the illusions of market fundamentalism in Europe. And we could still say, well, it's, it's an absolute scandal that we continue to finance their, their war machine. But you could also say that actually for the first time for decades, Europe is actually moving. And what the commission is saying is that they're ready to pay a certain price for something that, that, that we stand up to. How do you see Europe emerging from this war? I don't know. I'm not in the EU. I mean, I'm British, so I'm yeah. out of the EU. It's, al it's almost as if I like don't have a right anymore to comment on this. Um, and I don't have an answer for you. Looking at the track record, it'll fail. Nice words, it'll fail. It seems to be institutionally unable to take serious decisions. And despite the goodwill, despite a realization of many things, despite even a change within populations, the fundamental structure of it makes that sort of decision-making impossible. It was not built for this sort of decision-making. It was built to smooth differences, and it does that very well. It would That would mean a fundamental rejigging of what the skeleton of the EU is. And for those kind of structural reasons, it'll fail. I think, uh, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right that structurally we're not equipped to that and we're not really... How not is this decision going to be taken? You know, I just yeah. don't... It just buckles every way I look at it. But that doesn't... I mean, but maybe the EU needs some structural rebuilding. You know, maybe this is what's necessary. But the EU that we've always known, it's not designed for this. It's designed for smoothing difference between Alsace-Lorraine and the Rhineland in coal exports. That's what it does. And it does that amazingly. I think the EU is a miracle. A boring miracle, but that's great as well. <laughs> you know, what a, what a miracle to make Europe boring. But but I'm not anti-EU at all. I'm just like, is it really designed for this? They always, it was always designed in a way that each state could do its own foreign policy. That was always the aim. The aim was actually to enhance its economic prowess so they could do more foreign policy. I mean, the French always see the EU as a way to show, look how influential we are economically, therefore we're going to go and bomb some villages in Africa. I mean, together, these guys? I don't see it. The last question uh, is that you're in America, uh, and and uh, I think we had hopes for Joe Biden, and I think occasionally he says the right things, and occasionally he does the right things, and there at least it seems that America is waking up to the world, and the world is changing, and they have to invest something. But it's terrible to see him going to Saudi Arabia and negotiating there. It's terrible to see him go to Maduro. But this this very weak coalition, but still a coalition in the West that is gathered now. How do you see the strength of that, of the American support for that going into the midterm elections? Because yeah, that's our big, I think that's our big fear. Yeah, every, everybody, that, yeah everybody here is very, 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 very worried that the, that the Trump section will rise. And there is clearly a, a part of the Republican Party that sympathizes with Russia because, because they sympathize with Russia. They're just a bit like them. 
again, let's, I, I would frame around the positive. This is the first time we see any unity in America since 9-11. The first time, it's the first, literally the first bipartisan issue and also socially the first bipartisan issue. For the first time, the Trumpies are, are actually really strongly divided from the rest of the party. And my problem with the Biden thing is that they've been very weak taking advantage of this, only because they're scared that the Republicans will outflank them. So the Republicans are saying, let's be more aggressive. And so it's, that is the classic Democratic-Republican polarization. And that's why the, Biden hasn't invested more into it. I can understand why they do that from a tactical sense. I think it's a damn shame. Damn shame. Really could have united the nation around this. They're weak. So Communications-wise, it's a very weak regime, a very weak government. They have these huge plans and they communicate them so poorly. It's almost as if they're like from the, as if they're from another era. Their model of communication is so, just so from a different era. I mean, Obama was so good at this and they're so bad. And I just wonder why, why they are so bad at it. They haven't been able to communicate their economic reforms well at all, you know, domestically. It's, it's strange. They're doing really interesting, potentially very popular economic reforms. And I don't know, it's so feeble. It's so feeble. I'm not enough of an American expert to understand. Maybe there's something I don't understand, but I, I think they're really missing a huge trick with the Ukraine thing. I, farmers in Wyoming are pro-Ukrainian because they're inspired by Ukrainian farmers. You know, the right are inspired in, by Ukraine because the nation's standing up to an empire. There's so many deep, deep, deep sympathies which just aren't, aren't being taken advantage of. Well, at least we have been confronted with the shock here and, and that has galvanized a little bit mobilization in the West. I'm not sure how it will end, but I'm Very, very thankful for you taking your time. Thank you very much. <laughs> bye. Bye, bye. Thank you. Have a good day. Det var min samtale med Peter Pomerantsev, og jeg vil sige, hvis man har lyst til at læse mere af ham og få mere af hans analyse, så vil jeg meget, meget stærkt anbefale Nothing is true and everything is possible. The surreal heart of the new Russia fra 2014. Det er en fantastisk analyse af det, man troede var unikt for Rusland, men som siden har bredt sig også til den vestlige verdens demokratier. I næste uge, der skal jeg tale med den tyske filosof Christoph Menke. Vi skal tale om det samme, men på et lidt andet og traditionelt filosofisk niveau, nemlig om forholdet mellem krig og politik, mellem vold og ret, og så skal vi høre, hvad der egentlig er blevet af den skole, som rigtig mange af os på Dagblad Information er vokset op med i 20'erne, nemlig den progressive Frankfurterskole. Jeg håber, vi høres ved i næste uge. Den her langsomme samtale var som alle andre langsomme samtaler produceret af vores ven, Anne Pilgaard Petersen, som har sat mine brokker sammen til noget, der forhåbentlig kan lyttes til som en nogenlunde sammenhængende samtale. Tak for nu. Jeg håber, vi høres ved i næste uge.